Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. All right, grab your Bibles and meet me in Genesis chapter 1. Can't miss it, right at the beginning. Just open your Bible to the first couple of pages. Genesis 1, if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 2 in that Bible. And we are wrapping up today our series that we've called Authentic, Becoming Who We Really Are. We've been here for nine weeks, and we have been looking at uh, how do we live more authentically out of who God created us to be? How do we live out of our God-given identity, our identity in Jesus, and how can we live uh, without getting caught up in the other side of that, which we've talked about throughout, throughout the series, uh, what Christian psychologists and counselors have called the false self. The false self is the person that we put on to get through life. It is the person that we project to the world. And it's the person that is driven by our sin and by our selfishness and by our desire to look good and our desire to not let people in because if we let people in they might actually see that there is sin and that there is dysfunction and there's bad character in there so we all put someone on we put on the mask and we've been talking throughout the series about what that looks like and how that gets fueled and how can we start to confront that so that we can let some of that down and we can actually start living out of who God says that we are we can live out of our God-given identity as we find our identity in him the false self is our sinful self it it is our selfish self. Uh, it is driven by self-preservation. The false self is very defensive, and we are wanting to lay that down more because that's not who we really are. And so we've been talking in the series about figuring out who we really are, confronting the false self, and living out of God's truth. And that's where we're going to wrap it up today. I'm going to show you a video clip uh, as we get going here now from a movie called The Born Identity, which is uh, actually 17 years old now, which was a bit shocking to me. Uh, and so there was a series of movies in this little... Uh, sort of mini-series of movies. They got worse as they went on, uh, but the first one was pretty good. And so this is from the first one. And Jason Bourne, the movie starts with him getting pulled out of the ocean. He's floating in the sea. He's unconscious. He's been shot. And some fishermen pull him out, and they nurse him back to health over a couple of weeks. And hey, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't remember anything about who he is. He's got amnesia. And yet he realizes that he has a connection with, uh, he's able to get a lot of money. He has all these passports with his face in them from different countries. He has a gun, and he's not really sure about what this is all about. And so the movie is him figuring out his identity, the born identity. And in this scene, he has uh, found a woman who's willing to drive him to Paris. He's paid her a large amount of money in order to take him there. Uh, and this is them in the car. Take a look. So spoiler alert, 17 years later, it's because he's a spy. And he's going to figure it out as the movie goes on. But that is the great existential question that most of humanity has wrestled with for as long as we've been around, which is, who am I? And even for those of us who follow Jesus, that is part of the question that we wrestle with. It is part of our human nature. We are trying to figure out who we are. And like Jason Bourne, I think there is something in us where we know uh, maybe something about who we're supposed to be. We know there is more to life than this. We know there is something up. But we can't always easily answer that question, who am I? And we have wanted to engage with that through this series of going, who does God say that we are? And how can we live out of that identity more and more? And so today, we 
are going to wrap up the series just by looking at a whole lot of scripture. And as we went through the first service, I think I probably overdid it on the scripture a little bit. Uh, there's a lot. We're going to hit you with a fire hose this morning. But we're just going to move through a bunch of scripture about who does the Bible say that we are. So that we can finish on that note of just grounding ourselves in our identity according to what God says about us. Because part of answering this question, who am I, is that we can't really figure it out on our own. We all need help figuring out who we are. We need to be told who we are. And so as we are going through the word, we're going to say, well, who does God tell us that we are? Uh, there's a very kind of North American idea, even with our children, with our parenting, where we say, well, they're just figuring out who they are, and we're going to let them struggle. And in their high school years, they're figuring out who they are. But biblically, parents are there telling their kids who they are. They're not just letting them struggle to figure it out on their own, especially when there's a world out there trying to tell our kids who they are, when there's an enemy out there trying to pull our kids away from God. Like parents, we need to tell our kids who we are, but that's a courtesy that we can all extend to one another as well. And it's as simple as saying, hey, here's something that I notice about you. Here's something that I see in you. Here's a gift that you have, or here's some character quality that I notice. It's not actually that hard to help one another figure out who we are. And as we look at who we are today, uh, we're going to go all the way back to the garden, uh, back to Genesis chapter 1. So let's take a look at our text today. We have visited this text already in the series. We're going to use it just as a springboard today to lots of other scripture. We're starting in verse 26. God has been creating and creating and creating, and we have come to the end of the creation process Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So as we start back in the garden again, and we've, again, we took a week to look at this text already, uh, so we're not going to go through this particular passage in detail. But as Adam and Eve are created, and as God places them in the garden, one of the things that he does right away is tell them part of who they are, that you are here to rule. You are here to reign over the earth. He gives them a blessing, and he gives them a charge. He gives them, this is part of your purpose. You are here to rule over creation. And so uh, we need to be told by God who we are. We need to hear from him on that. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus before he went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was baptized in water. And when he was baptized in water, if you remember, the father spoke over his life and said, You are my son who I love, and in you I am well pleased. And so even Jesus needed to hear something about who he was from the Father in heaven because Jesus was heading out into the temptation and the enemy from the beginning as the temptation starts right away starts going, if you really are the Son of God, starts messing with his identity right away. But Jesus had just heard his identity from his Father in heaven. He was solid and secure in the temptation. So we want to hear from God today. Who does God say that we are? Uh, as we look at these different things, um, there's a bunch of different scriptures that we're going to work through. And it's important to notice as we go through it, that none of the things that we're about to read about ourselves come from ourselves. 
Uh, none of it is because we're so great or we're so strong or we're so lovable or anything like that. Everything that God says about who we are comes to us from him by his grace, because of his love and because of his goodness. Every blessing that we have is not, it's not something that we are generating. It's coming to us by grace. And so we want to remember that as we go through. And also, there's going to be some things on this list that maybe you go, oh, I can kind of see that working in my life. And there's going to be other things on this list where you might go, you know what, I don't really feel that at all. And I'm just going to throw out there, whether you feel every single one of these things or not, or whether you uh, can see these things that work in your life or not, is actually irrelevant relevant because it's the truth of God's word and his word is true whether I feel it or not right whether it's something that I've grabbed a hold of deep in my soul and it's driving my life or not he you are who he says you are this is who he says you are and it's true whether it gives us a warm fuzzy feeling or not and so we want to engage with the truth of his word today who does he say that we are and so we're going to start where we just started first of all you are an image bearer of God and um, we took a week to unpack that from the passage we just read. Genesis 1:27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we wanted to start there because that is actually something that is true for every human on earth. Every human on earth is made in the image of God. As such, we are the most important part of his creation. We are the part of his creation that is the most like him. And there is something of the divine that has been stamped onto every human being on earth. There is something about the image of God that is consistent, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. And so we start there, that you are special in all of creation because you are made in God's image. And every human on earth, regardless of where they are at with Jesus, is worthy to be treated with dignity and respect and honor for the the sole reason that they are made in the image of God. And now as we are sinners, as we have rejected God, as we have fallen into evil, that image of God has been broken. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, the image of God has been defaced, but it hasn't been erased. And now for those of us who are following after Jesus, we are being restored back to that again. Romans says that we who with unveiled faces behold the Lord's glory are being transformed into the image of his Son uh, with ever-increasing glory, that he is restoring us back as we are being transformed by his work in our lives. So we start there. We are an image-bearer of God. Not only that, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The psalmist said this in Psalm 139, 14. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. What are the works? Well, it's all of creation, but you are part of that. God does good work. And the psalmist says, I praise you because I am part of that. Your works are wonderful, and you have wonderfully made me. And that word fearfully doesn't mean like scared. It's just the with the reverence and awe of a creator who the Bible says knits us together in our mother's womb, that you were handcrafted by God in your mother's womb, and you were brought forth uh, with a physical body, with a soul. You were brought forth with imagination and creativity and intellect and emotion and logic and reason, all of these incredible things that God has as well that we bear as image bearers of God. But you were handcrafted by him. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. And some of that is even just the bodies that we bear. My wife, before she uh, began to study to be a paralegal, was a massage therapist. And so she went to college, and a lot of what you study in college in that line of work is just the body. You're taking classes on anatomy and biology and all these things. And one of the things my wife said is it's so funny to think that some people feel like science pulls us away from God. 
Because the more I studied the science of the human body, the more I was filled with worship, actually. The more amazed I was at how these bodies tick and all the things that happen in there and all the regulation that's going on and how the different parts of the body interact and the brain firing and nerve endings and all of these incredible things. Like, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's an amazing thing. And the Bible says God did that, that you were handcrafted in his image. And not only did he give you your body, your soul, your intellect, and everything, he gave you a personality. He gave you giftings. He gave you, he gave you a destiny. He gave you plans for a future to prosper you and not to harm you. Uh, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. You were made on purpose by God. And that's worth saying, hey, that's, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty good feeling to know the God who created the galaxies also chose to create you as well. Fearfully and wonderfully made. You're helpless in your sin. Woohoo! Hooray! And that's not something that we sing a lot about. I mean, we sing about the salvation that has come all the time, but that is one of the things that the Bible says about who we are. And so if we're talking about who does God say we are, we want to acknowledge that as well. Romans 7, 18 and 19, we looked at this the first week, says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And Paul just gives us the most relatable passage of all time in Romans chapter 7. Of I know what I should be doing, but I can't get there. I know what I'm not supposed to be doing, and I keep falling into that. And so there's this undeniable theme from Genesis to Revelation that we are sinners and actually are helpless in our sin. We cannot, through our own efforts, our own self-discipline, work our way out of our sin. We cannot, through doing 27 good things and only one bad thing, earn a good standing with God. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn eternity with him. We cannot pull ourselves up on our own. We just don't have it in us. You are helpless in your sin. And we can't engage with the salvation that God promises if we don't start with that. We have to acknowledge the problem first, is that I am a sinner, I am helpless in my sin. But as we would say, that is just the bad news part of the equation. The good news is, when we couldn't save ourselves, God didn't say, wow, sucks to be you guys, you're on your own. But when we couldn't save ourselves, he sent to us a Savior, and when we were helpless in our sin, Jesus came to pull us out of it. That he did not abandon us and leave us alone and say, well, it's your guys' fault. You did it, right? Like, you, you deserve it, so you're on your own. That even though we did do it, and even though we did deserve punishment, and even though we did deserve death, he came in mercy and compassion anyway to save us out of our sin. Jesus came to save us. And so we acknowledge our helplessness. And one of the things we've done in this series, like 27 times, I've said, hey, look in the mirror, right? Because one of the things we've wanted to do is be very honest, be very authentic about our sin and not make excuses and not make qualifiers and not say, well, I do this, but I'm not as bad as that guy. But to just take an honest assessment of what is my struggle, where is my character lacking, and to be able just to be authentic in that way, to say, hey, here's what's not going great in my life, because we're not going to be able to, to move forward and get out of that if we're not willing to acknowledge it first. And so we want to acknowledge, not in a guilt and condemnation way, but just in an authentic way, that we are sinners and we are helpless in our sin. Even though that is the case, and even though the Bible says we have turned away from God, we all like sheep have gone astray, we have dishonored him, we have chosen the path of darkness, we have chosen that and corrupted ourselves as we did it, even though we are enemies of God, even though we're choosing our own way, even though that is the case, another amazing part about our identity is that even though we are sinners, 
that, that we are also lavishly loved by God. 1 John 3, 1. Uh, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He loves us anyway, but when we say yes to Jesus, we are brought back into the family. Right? He calls you son again. Romans says you've been adopted back in. Even though like the prodigal, you have run far from him, when you reach out to Jesus, when you grab a hold of the salvation that's offered, you are welcome back in, just like the father welcomed the prodigal back home. Put a robe on his, finger, on his back, put a ring on his finger, kill the fatted calf, we're having a party. Right? Like that is the heart of heaven when a sinner comes home. And it's like, yeah, you're not, even though you disowned us and cut us off, you were inviting you back in. You're part of the family again. You are a son again. You are an heir again. And so we're invited to sit at the table. And again, it's not just that we're loved by God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Just over and abundant, ridiculous love, right? Rich and abundant love is the, the heart of the Father towards those of us who are his children. It's, it's a beautiful thing. You're lavishly loved by God. We looked at this verse as well from Ephesians. You're loved with a huge love as well. It's just a love that is almost beyond comprehension. Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Just this uh, heartfelt prayer from Paul to say, God's love for you is so huge that I pray you'll just be able to, to grasp, that you'll get a handle on it. This, you'll have some knowledge about this love that is beyond knowledge, that this love that is so much bigger than you can possibly comprehend. If you think about the people you love the most in your life, your family, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, God's love is so far beyond that love that you feel. The love that you feel that you have, it's, it's amazing, it's big, it's real, but it's, it's human, it's finite. God's love is infinite. And Paul's prayer was, oh, I just pray that you can taste it. I pray that you can grasp it, because you can't really figure it out on your own. God's going to have to reveal it to you, but I pray that you will know something of this love that is so much bigger than you can comprehend. And so living authentically is to live out of that, that I am loved by God. And even if I sin today, I am still loved by God. And even though I'm not, uh, you know, walking the way I'd like to all the time, and I see the struggles in my character, and I'm not doing what I should be doing, like Paul said, I, the evil I don't want to do, I keep doing that, and the, the good that I should be doing, I don't always do that. All of that notwithstanding, I am deeply loved by him, because I'm his, because I have been brought into the family of God. You're loved with a huge love. Not only that, you're valuable to God. You're valuable to him. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, that sin nature that we've received all the way back to Adam and Eve. It wasn't with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Right? Silver and gold being hugely valuable things. Peter says, yeah, it's not even with that. God redeemed you. God paid for you. But it wasn't with the most valuable things here on earth. He paid for you with his own blood. He laid his life down for you. That's how important it was to him that you enter into eternity with him. That's how valuable you were to him. You are valuable to God. The Bible says the love of God is expressed most clearly at the cross, that his love is expressed where we were enemies, and even then, when we were sinners, even then, he died for us. That's how big 
his love is for us. That even when we were so far from him, rejecting him, dishonoring him, then when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you think about the people you struggle to love, you think of the people maybe even you hate or have hated, you don't usually think, I'm going to die for the people that I hate. I'm going to die for the people who are, who are against me. I'm going to die for the people who are out to get me. But it says, though, even when we were those people, God loved us anyway and laid down his life for us anyway. We are valuable to God. That's a good feeling to be able to say that, that he wouldn't have died for me if he didn't love me, and he wouldn't have paid such a high price if it wasn't that important to him that that happened. You are redeemed and forgiven, Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he's lavished on us. There's that word lavished again, right? Out of the overabundance of the riches that he has, he's given us his grace. And just a reminder, it is from the riches of his grace. It is his grace, it is his goodness that, are, that is making these things happen. It's not what we bring to the table. The word redeemed there is a legal term. The picture is of a slave who you pay for so that they can come out of slavery. He has brought us out of that. He is redeeming. He is taking back what was caught up, what was bound. And he's forgiven us, again, not because we've done so much that deserves forgiving, but out of the riches of his grace, you're forgiven. The sins you've committed are forgiven and will continue to be forgiven as we walk with him. You're set free from sin to live for God. We took a week to talk about this. Romans 6, 17, and then verse 22 says, Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. That it is so easy for us to identify ourselves as sinners, 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 and we are but we don't want to ignore passages like this that say, like, yeah, you're not slaves to your sin anymore. That's not who you are. And the enemy would love for you to feel like that all the time. The enemy would love nothing more than for us to feel bound and caught up and identified as sinners. But the New Testament doesn't actually call us sinners that much. Far more often, the New Testament uses the title saints, which means holy ones. And that is what we are called over and over and over again. The Bible says, yeah, it's, you're not slaves to that stuff anymore. It's not that you're not going to continue to struggle with sin. It's not going to just disappear when we come to Jesus. But you're not slaves to that anymore. That's not who you are. You are set free from your sin so that you can be slaves to God. You're set free from your sin so that you can live towards holiness, so that you can be who he called you to be. You can live the way he called you to live. You're set free from sin so that you can live towards the perfection that Jesus has called us to. Also, you are perfect forever and a work in progress at the same time. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture, Hebrews 10, 14. For by one sacrifice, the cross... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And the reason I love this verse so much is because it captures the tension that we're living in so well. Because when you say you're perfect forever, yeah, in your standing with God, you are perfect forever. Your sins are washed away. There is nothing being counted against you. Those things have been nailed to the cross like we sang about this morning. Our sins are dealt with in God's eyes right now. Everyone who has said, to Je had said yes to Jesus is perfect forever. There is nothing more you need to do. There is nothing that can be added. If you were to pass away today, you would stand before him free and clear, no problem, because of what Jesus has done for you. You are perfect forever. Come on. Amazing. 
And yet, as I've asked you to take 27 good hard looks in the mirror without excuses as we've gone through this series, we know very well that when I look in the mirror, I'm not actually that perfect. I'm pretty far from it. And that's why I love this verse. You're perfect forever, but you're also being made holy at the same time. In terms of your standing with God, you are set. But in terms of your life here on earth, you got some work to do along the way. We are being made holy. And we are in this process of saying, if that wall over there is heaven and perfection, where I'm perfectly right with God, and here's where I stand today, I am moving towards that perfection. I am being transformed. I am being changed. My identity is being driven by that perfection and not the sin that I am struggling with today. I am living towards that. I am living towards that holiness. I am acknowledging simultaneously the tension that I am perfect forever and a work in progress at the same time. And there's a lot of encouragement and hope that comes when we can do that. When I say there's nothing I can do to mess up my standing with God, and yet I understand that there's work to do while I'm here at the same time, and I'm moving towards that perfection that is who I am. Moving on, you're crucified and raised again. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our sinful self is both dead and being killed at the same time. We took a week to talk about that same type of tension. That in our standing with God, we are good, and yet we understand there's sin in my life that still needs to die. There's bad character that still needs to die. There's selfishness that still needs to die. And so uh, Colossians uses the language of we're taking off the old self and we're putting on the new self. Uh, we're getting rid of old, bad, sinful, negative stuff, and we're putting on good and godly stuff. Uh, we are living out that way now. We are crucified. We're laying our lives down for his sake, and yet we're not doing that just to die. The only things that need to die when it comes to death to self are things that actually do need to die. The, the garbage in our lives, the bad things, the sin, that stuff needs to go. But we're laying our life down, understanding that in this gospel story, death isn't the end of the story. It's always resurrection. And so we are wanting to lay down what needs to be laid down so that we can be raised up by him into better, into good, into godly, into holy, so that we can walk in the way that he's called us to walk, and that is who we are. Along these lines, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a new creation. You are not stamped and marked as your sinful self anymore. You are a holy one. You are being made new. You are being restored. And the Bible talks about this, again, as a process. It's not an instant thing. But our minds are being made new. Our heart is being made new. Our souls are being made new. One day, even our bodies will be made new. Every single part of us is being being restored into the new creation, which was actually going to be the original creation. It's the way that we were always supposed to be before sin came along and, and we made bad choices and messed it all up. We are being restored back into what God originally intended. And again, let's live out of that. If we're going to live authentically, let's live out of the new creation. Let's live towards the new creation. Let's let that drive us in our lives. You are chosen, holy, and blameless. Ephesians 1, 4. There's a bunch of scriptures we could have used to back these things up. But he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You're chosen by God. That's an incredible thought. That's an incredible feeling. You're chosen by him. When I proposed to Sarah and she said yes, the power in that moment of I, we're choosing each other. Anyone that either one of us could have been with in the whole world, you're choosing each other. When she said yes, that's one of the favorite words I've ever heard in my life. Beaten only maybe by hearing daddy, which, could, which is up there in the same ballpark. 
And so that yes, and for Sarah to hear the question to be asked, like, I choose you. Do you choose me back? I do. Awesome. To be chosen by somebody. And, you know, we tell our kids, like, we chose to have you. We prayed for you. Like, we, this was intentional. We, we chose to have you. We prayed to God to give you to us. It's a feeling that's incredible to be chosen, to be holy and blameless. Blameless in the Bible uh, does not mean sinless. It does not mean perfect. Uh, but what it does mean, Job is spoken of as blameless. And it means certainly to, to live upright, to live uh, well, to follow the word of God. But it also means that uh, when it comes to your sin and God, you keep a real short account. You keep a real short list. And so what the Bible says about Job is he was upright and he was blameless. And when sin did happen, he would go, he'd offer a sacrifice, he'd make it right with God. Uh, that's what they did in the Old Testament. We don't do that now. But he would, he would not let sin linger. He would not let sin stay, and he would repent, and he would turn regularly. And so we believe Jesus has sacrificed for us. We don't need to keep doing sacrifices anymore. But to be blameless is not to be sinless, but it's to say, I am living rightly as, as much as I am able to with the Spirit's help. And when I don't, I'm dealing with sin quickly so that there's nothing that can be held against me. Uh, there's nothing that any person could say about my reputation. There's nothing that the enemy could accuse me of. Uh, I'm keeping a short account of my sin with God. That is to be blameless. Chosen by God to be holy and blameless. Uh, we're almost done here. You are a co-heir with Christ. Uh, incredible. Romans 8:17. If we are children, if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Right? Parents who pass away will leave their kids an inheritance. And we don't usually have estates and things in our culture now. But that's the picture that's being used, because as it turns out, our father is the king, and he's got quite an estate. And so it's that if we are children of God, if we are part of the family, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Uh, that as, as our father is king, and as we are part of his family, we get the inheritance. We are part of that inheritance. We are co-heirs of the inheritance with Jesus. And the Bible says, actually, we're going to reign with Jesus. We are going to rule with him in the age to come. That what was originally started in Eden got screwed up where we were supposed to rule, rule and reign over everything. When that got messed up, Satan took over. Jesus has now taken that back with his death and resurrection. And then as we go into eternity, we will reign with him. We are being prepared to rule and reign with Jesus. And I don't know what that looks like or what that's about, whether it's like, all right, you take uh, Asia and I'll watch this ocean over here. Like, I don't know how it all works out practically, but we are heirs of the promises of God. We are heirs of the inheritance of God. Everything that Jesus got, we will also get, except for the title of Lord. That's his and his alone. But the eternal life that he won, and the glories of heaven that he won, and the riches that he won, we get to share in. Again, not because of anything we've done, but because he's a good dad. And good dads take care of their kids. And so when we said yes to Jesus, we got a lot of things. There was a lot of stuff that we got uh, invited in on just because we're part of the family. And when you're part of the family, you get to share the blessings of the family. And so we are inheritors of the promises of God. The Bible says, in Jesus, every promise is yes and amen. Every promise is ours because of him. You're forever united with him. Romans 8, 38, 39, famous passage. Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're united with him forever. And I'm not going to trigger a debate here this morning on predestination and all that stuff. So you have fun. You can sort through that on your own. And uh, you can talk to someone else on staff if you have any questions about that. But... 
like any power, and like, I mean, the list could go on and on and on, but like there's nothing out there that can make him stop loving you. There's nothing out there that can pull you away. There's nothing out there that can bring that division. You are forever united with him, and that is part of his incredible grace and promise to us. Uh, last one, you are God's handiwork. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork. And that word handiwork in different versions gets interpreted as masterpiece. It gets interpreted as artistry. You are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, as we walk with him, he is forming us into who we were always supposed to be. He is doing his work of transformation in us. And again, he does really good work. You're a masterpiece, the Bible says, as he forms you into who you were always supposed to be. Again, not that we're that great or that special, but that because of his love, because of his grace, because of his goodness, he is doing his work in us. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done here. Uh, I threw tons at you today, and again, we got through. I uh, was putting it together this week, and it might have been a bit much, but we, we wanted to get it all in there. So thanks for hanging in there uh, today through this. If you have any questions to follow up, we do have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca, and we would love to keep chatting about the message or any of those scriptures. We'd be happy to take some time to do that. So as we come to the end of the series, uh, just by way of a very quick recap, this is the journey we've been on over the last nine weeks. We started off with a message that we called inauthentic. The series was called Authentic, but the first message was inauthentic because we wanted to highlight the problem uh, right off the bat. And so we were in Romans 7, and we took some time to talk about uh, what our sin does to us, what our pain does, what our shame does. We took a lot of time to identify the false self, uh, what that looks like, our sinful, selfish self. And so we started it off there because before we went anywhere, we just really felt we wanted to make clear what's the problem that we're trying to engage with through the series. The problem is because of our pain, our sin, our shame uh, because we have sinned because we've been sinned against we don't live authentically we live very inauthentically and so let's call that what it is so that we can start to move through a healthier way to deal with this stuff we did a message called Imago Dei, which is Latin for image of God, and I've touched on it already today, just talking about being made in his image, what that means, that is part of who we are. We bear that stamp of the divine, broken by sin, being restored by grace as we walk with him. We did a message on the love of God, uh, that we would be rooted and established in his love, as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, that whatever else we are facing, whatever else we're going through, when the winds of the storms of life blow, we're not gonna go anywhere in our faith because we are rooted and established. The roots go deep and understanding that if I really truly know and believe that I am loved by God with a huge lavish love, that's going to get me through a lot in life. That's going to be a huge part of me understanding who I am and feeling safe and secure in his love rooted and established there. We did a message, again, I've already touched on No Longer Slaves, talking about Let's not let our identity be primarily driven by the sin in our lives. Let's let our identity be driven by the fact that we're set free from sin. And we are now called holy ones. And we're living towards that holiness. And we're going to be identified by holiness. And we're going to be marked by God as his holy ones that he calls us to be. And even if I don't feel overly holy, and even if I acknowledge the sin in my life, I'm not going to let that drive who I am. I'm going to let the identity that God has given me, which I, is that I am a holy one, and I'm going to let my reality catch up with his truth, and I'm going to live that way. We took a week to look at the temptation of Christ called Unmasking the Imposter. We want to talk specifically about the false self and three great lies that the enemy uses to get us to live falsely, which are, I am what I do, I am what others think, and I am what I have. 
And when we live driven by those things, we live very falsely and we very easily fall into unhealthy things. We wanted to acknowledge those temptations and lies for what they were uh, so that we could find a healthier way to live. We did a week on desires. The psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This idea that there are desires in all of us and they are themselves not bad things. But when we look to people, when we look to things, when we look to sin, when we look to money to fill these desires, it can become very unhealthy. And again, we're living very falsely in those moments. That verse that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our heart, I think does not necessarily mean that when we delight ourselves in God, he's going to give us everything we want. But it's that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will be ultimately the fulfillment of all of our desires. And so as we talked about those desires that drive us in so many ways, we talked about how can we then look to the Lord to be the one to fill those desires in our life so that we're not looking unhealthy places for that to happen. We did a good old-fashioned death to self message called dying to live. That there are parts of our life that need to die and not just for the sake of dying, but so that better things can be raised up. We can be resurrected to his life and took some time to unpack that crucifixion process. Last week, we did a message called detach, talking about the idols in our lives, those inordinate attachments, the things that we look to instead of the Lord to fulfill us or to distract us or to numb us from our pain or whatever. And how can we find a healthier way uh, to live out this Christian life? And then we wrap up today with a message called Who You Say I Am. And we just, uh, I know I hit you with a lot of stuff, but that was on purpose. We just wanted to land on a whole lot of truth about who the Bible says that we are. Who does God say that we are so that we can understand that that is our true identity. And again, even if every part of what we went through today isn't something that you maybe feel deep down or see in action in your life, that's actually irrelevant to the fact that God's truth is God's truth and it will always be God's truth. You are who he says you are. And if there's an area where I don't really see it functioning, then it's like, okay, well, I'm going to lean into that one then. And I'm going to pray into that one. I'm going to give some attention to that one. And I'm going to trust that as I walk with him, the reality of my life is going to catch up to the truth of his word as I continue to press on after him. And with that, we are at the end. That is a wrap for the Authentic series, Becoming Who We Really Are. And I know it's... It's... Uh, been a little bit of a challenging one, I think. It's been a bit of a heavier one. I know when I was preparing for it, there was there's a lot of soul searching going on. There's a lot of reflection going on. Again, there were a lot of times asking, okay, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's not cover this stuff up. Let's maybe expose and name some of these things that we're struggling with. It was not the easiest one for sure. However, uh, our hope in this series, as we have prepared and prayed for it, is that we will have a better understanding of who he says we are. We'll have a better understanding of where we're not living that way, of where the lies and the, the false desires and the things of the enemy have been at work, so that we can live out of the truth of what he says more and more. And so we pray that continues to happen as the Spirit continues to do his work as we move on to other things uh, in the teaching here at the church over the next number of weeks. We want to, uh, as we get ready to close, just spend some time in gratitude and thanksgiving and worship. We want to offer him some worship, some thanksgiving for what he's doing in us and through us. So would you stand to your feet, please, as we get ready to close. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we lift up your name on high this morning because you are good. You are a good Father because you love us to no end because you have chosen us. Father, this morning, uh, it is good to be in your presence. It is good to uh, just lavish in your love. And uh, I just pray this morning that you would fill our hearts with your presence, that this morning we would feel 
um, just your love in a real tangible way. And we thank you, Father, that you um, show us who we are and we don't have to lean on other things from this world to know who we are. And because you are good, you make us good things, nothing but good things. And so this morning we just praise you and we worship you because you are worthy of all praise and all worship. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Just want to remind you, we have a prayer team at the front here. So if you need prayer, please come to the front this morning. And we just want to ask you that if you want to socialize and just visit, we go in the lobby outside. Have a good Sunday morning.